0: that's chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18
0: plus. <laughs> Missouri 1867.
2: Charles Bowles sits with his wife, Mary, before a fire in their small farmhouse. They hold hands and sit quietly as the orange flames dance and the wood crackles. They sit, but don't speak. Because they've said it all before. Instead, they rest in the peaceful tranquility of two lovers relishing each other's presence.
1: They don't have much. This house, this fire, four daughters sleeping in other rooms. A little bit of land and the crops they try to grow, mostly unsuccessfully, to get by. They live hand to mouth, spending most nights worrying about how to provide for their children. It's not a luxurious life by any measure, but in moments like this, they find the peace that keeps them going.
2: To some, Maybe even many. What Charles and Mary have might look like the American dream. They have a happy marriage, four healthy children, and a plot of land. But there's something burning inside Charles' bowls. He and his family deserve more. He knows it and longs to make it happen. Yet in this moment, sitting before the fire, he suppresses his discontentment, these ambitions, and squeezes his wife's hand a little tighter. Yeah, it's enough. It has to be, and why not? He has love and comfort, all anyone ever needs. And yet, he wonders, how long can he, Charles Bowles, cling to this lie?
1: Fast forward a decade, August 3rd, 1877. A Wells Fargo stagecoach rounds the bend on a trail somewhere between Point Arena and Duncan Mills in Northern California. It's a crisp, cool morning, a little hazy, as it often is this close to the coast, and the sun will soon burn through. Birds chirp among the redwoods, twigs break beneath the coach's wheels, and the horses snort between deep breaths, straining under the driver's demanding pace. He has a schedule to keep, and he cannot be late.
2: The coach bounces over uneven terrain. The driver, he's a seasoned veteran, so this is no big deal. It's another day on the line, another job to complete, and he pays attention only to the road before him. Inside, the coach's passengers, all of whom have paid for a ride to Duncan Mills, don't fare as well. They clutch any handhold in sight, straining to keep their nausea at bay, willing the ride to be over soon. At
1: that moment, a lone figure appears in the distance.
2: A mere dot in the shadows of the redwoods.
1: Yet it looms in the middle of the trail.
2: The coach approaches, and the figure comes into focus.
1: The driver's leaning forward for a better look. He tugs the rein and the horses slow, bringing sighs of relief from the passengers within. Finally, a break.
2: The stagecoach halts as a driver releases a slow breath and rubs his face. This is the last thing anybody needs today.
1: Before the stagecoach stands a man wearing a linen duster jacket and an expensive bowler hat. He's not particularly big or imposing, and if it wasn't for the flower bag covering the stranger's face, the bag with the eye holes cut out of the front, He might look like just about anybody you come across out in California.
2: The bag on his head is a clue, sure, but the shotgun in his hands is a dead giveaway. No one will confuse him for anything other than what he is and no one will misread the situation. The stranger primes the shotgun and says,
1: I'll take the cash box and any mail you might have, please.
2: And the driver responds,
1: Are you sure you want to do this? Is it worth the trouble? Is it worth the wrath of Wells Fargo? You know every detective in California will be on your tail.
2: A commotion bubbles from inside the stagecoach. Just give him what he wants, yeah? We've got somewhere to be, one passenger hollers, though none of them know exactly what's going down.
1: I've thought this through, sir, and I do believe it is in both our best interests for you to not waste any more of our time and give me what I have so kindly requested.
2: The driver looks at the cash box sitting next to him on the bench seat and shoves it (coughs) to the ground.
1: The passengers now suddenly all too aware of why the coach has stopped, hold their valuables outside the windows. An expensive watch, a pearl necklace, cash, anything they have that a highwayman might find of interest.
2: Just please don't hurt us, one of them says.
1: So kind of you to offer what you have, the stranger says. But my business is with Wells Fargo alone. Do put your things away.
2: The man hands the driver a note.
1: Read it, please, he says. It's a poem. I've labored long and hard for bread, for honor and for riches, but on my corns too long you've tread, you fine-haired sons of-
2: The note is signed, Black Bart.
1: The driver clears his throat and looks again to the stranger, waiting for what comes next.
2: And to his surprise, the highwayman tips his hat, thanks the driver for his time and disappears. Yeah, he takes the cash box and the mail and books it into the California wilderness, leaving everyone on the coach utterly speechless.
1: It's a loose 40 or 50 miles into the woods before, at last, he sets up camp. It's a long while before he decides things are truly safe. Then off comes the mask, the shotgun, and the gold coins he's stolen. In a moment, he'll continue on, all the way to San Francisco.
2: Because that's where the robber lives, not as black Bart but is Charles Bowles, an ordinary Missouri farmer who's come west to strike his fortune in the mines.
1: He's an enigma, polite in person, crass in writing.
2: Gentle, yet simmering with potential for violence within.
1: A strange specter who vanishes as quickly as he appears on the roads of Northern California.
2: This is not his first time, of course. He's robbed before, and he will rob again and again and again.
1: 28 times in total.
2: Eventually, he'll rob Wells Fargo of $18,000, or roughly $500,000 in today's money.
1: He'll go on to terrorize stagecoaches around Northern California until the name Black Bart becomes synonymous with gentleman robber and poet outlaw. And one day, this unassuming, hardworking farmer from the middle of the country will become a legend of the West
2: only to be ruthlessly murdered in cold blood on the job.
1: So, what happens? How does Charles Bowles go from struggling Missouri farmer to legendary highwayman? What lives deep inside his soul that forces him to break bad and become a gentleman robber?
2: And what does he have against Wells Fargo?
1: We'll get to that. But in the meantime, Charles Bowles has some poems to write and a whole lot of money to steal.
2: History happened, the good, bad, the ugly. This is the underside of history, the lesser-known pieces lost in the bigger picture of time. From the creators of myths and legends and from cast media, this is Scoundrel, history's forgotten villains. We're Jason and Carissa Weiser.
1: Join us every episode as we explore the dark, quirky, and bizarre history that you might not have heard before, but really should.
2: Life is never easy for Charles Bowles. Born in England in 1829, Charles and his parents immigrate to rural New York when he's just a toddler. There, they toil on a farm. And although every day is a struggle, his parents are able to provide an education for their son.
1: What Charles's parents can't provide in things or financial security, they provide with hopes and ambitions. They came to the United States in pursuit of the American dream. They're never wealthy in New York, but they're better off than in England and they imbue Charles with the idea that the world is his for the taking, that with hard work and dedication, all the promises of the American dream that brought them across the ocean will one day belong to Charles.
2: So he pursues the American dream, and at one point, he does find himself close to great wealth. In the 1850s, now in his 20s, and married to Mary, Charles watches the country fall to gold fever. He and his brother David join the bandwagon and head west to California to prospect for gold. They camp along the American River just outside Sacramento, but all they find is gold dust. Occasionally, a few small nuggets appear, but reality sets in, and the brothers must admit, they have missed the boom. There's nothing left except everyone else's scraps.
1: Then David meets someone in a Sacramento saloon who knows someone, who knows someone, who knows someone, who knows knows something, who finally knows something way further north, closer to the mountains. Yeah, there's gold there that no one could comprehend. Verified, of course. Seen by human eyes and ready for the
2: taking. There's a chance it's just another tall tale of the California gold rush, but Charles and David should check it out for themselves, right? If there's even the slightest chance it's true and they do find gold, they'd never have to work again. Their families would never have a day of worry.
1: Let's do it, David says one night under the stars. We've got nothing left to lose. What's the worst that could happen? A long walk in the woods?
2: They never get to find out, because David contracts a fever. Within days, he's dead. His body left cradled in the arms of Charles Bowles. Brothers separated all too soon, alone beneath the California stars on the banks of the American River.
1: What might have been, what could have been, should have been, Every day after his brother dies, Charles wonders. And every day, the deafening trickle of life's hourglass pours away. If he's going to amount to anything more than a hill of beans, Charles has to act now. Hey everyone, Jason and Carissa here.
2: If you're enjoying Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review.
1: Also, we'd love your feedback. Go
2: to castmedia.com slash scoundrelfeedback and answer our survey. Thanks. Today's episode is brought to you by another podcast, The Jordan Harbinger Show. And yes, we've talked about it before. And also, yes, if you haven't checked it out yet, we still think you should.
1: Jordan's show was an Apple Best of 2018 show, and it's still as good as ever. It's designed to make you better informed, a more critical thinker, so you can make your own conclusions about the world.
2: He's talked with everybody from neuroscientists to counterfeiters to astronauts. The list of episodes is enormous. And that means not only variety, but definitely something for everybody.
1: In one episode, Jordan talks with a hostage negotiator from the FBI about techniques on how to get people to like you, which could come in handy at your next dinner party. But then in another episode, you might hear a conversation with an art forger who is on the run from the feds and the mafia.
2: Not a good place to be.
1: No, but a good episode.
2: If you're not sure where to jump in, I recommend Jordan's conversation with Mark Cuban about tales from the shark side. Ooh, but there's also the one with Tony Hawk about why taking risk matters and why it's important to learn everything about your craft, even if you have someone else who, you know, handles that.
1: I mean, that is so interesting. And it applies to podcasting, too.
2: Yeah, we really enjoy this show. And we think you will as well.
1: There's a lot to like.
2: Check out jordanharbinger.com slash start for some episode recommendations.
1: Or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the new Audible original, The Sandman, Act 3.
2: The next installment of the number one New York Times audio bestseller is Here. It's based on the best-selling DC graphic novels written by Neil Gaiman, adapted and directed by audio master Dirk Maggs, and yes, James McAvoy returns in the title role, Morpheus, Lord of Dreams.
1: Neymour, the stellar cast also features Kat Dennings, Kristen Schaal, Jeffrey Wright, Regé-Jean Page, and Neil Gaiman himself. Plus, new to Act 3 are David Harewood, K.J. Appa, and Will Wheaton.
2: In Act 3, we follow Morpheus on his journey to take care of a little family business. He visits his son, Orpheus.
1: But that comes with profound consequences.
2: Accompanied by delirium, he tracks down their estranged brother, Destruction.
1: The only members of the Endless to ever abandon their
2: post. But by seeking Destruction...
1: It's possible that Morpheus might have just brought all those forces upon himself. Act 3 of the Sandman audio epic takes us through the fan favorite, Volume 8, Brief Lives, and the reality storm tales of Volume 7, World's End.
2: Best of all, this is a fully immersive listening experience presented for the first time in breathtaking 3D audio. So catch up, dive in, go deeper into the dreaming.
1: Listen now, only on Audible.
2: Georgia, 1863. The nation descends into chaos and civil war and the tides of history sweep away all of 34-year-old Charles's plans and ambitions He's now Sergeant Charles Bowles of the Illinois Volunteer Infantry and finds himself on a southern field, bracing for a swarm of charging Confederate soldiers.
1: The coarse blue wool of his uniform chafes his skin. Sweaty palms grip his musket. But it's difficult when you're trembling. Like a gray wall, the Confederates approach, blasting their rebel call in unison, gaining speed led by the sharp metal of their bayonets.
2: They close the gap to the Union line. Fast. And by then, the gray wall has become a thousand individual faces, young like his, but maybe not as scared and ready to kill. Charles fires a shot. No Confederate falls. They don't even slow. He rushes to reload, but his fingers aren't cooperating.
1: He's too slow, and a young enemy soldier, one no older than Charles's late brother David, breaks the line. The young soldier's bayonet comes fast, comes true slices through the wool of Charles' uniform with little resistance.
2: At first, the blade feels cold. Then, all too soon, the sharp burning of tearing muscle takes over, even before he falls to the ground. In the chaos, he's nearly trampled by the gray wall.
1: How did I end up here? He thinks in the final moments of consciousness, as the American dream becomes the American nightmare.
2: Missouri, 1867. It's a hot summer morning and Charles Bowles, now 38, struggles to plow his fields. It's difficult, even more so when your oxen refuse. Not that he could blame them, with the humidity and the brutal sun, but his livelihood depends on this, the Missouri dirt. He implores the oxen, he curses them, he prays for them, even tries bargaining with them.
1: But they answer only with stubborn silence. Sitting in the dirt, chucking a stone out of frustration, Charles is in a difficult place once again. How has he ended up here? He wonders, why him? Why this godforsaken farm that never grows enough? And why these useless animals that won't do one simple
2: job? Standing, he grabs hold of the plow once more and cracks the reins, hard. The oxen lurch more than he was expecting and they're off, ripping the plow from his grasp. Wincing, he holds up both hands, searching for splinters as the animals charge across the field. A familiar shot of pain runs through his old scar from the battlefield, and he remembers the length of his struggles.
1: It's too much for him to carry. The struggle of Missouri farm life, the emptiness in the wake of his brother's death, the civil war he barely survived, the bullheaded oxen dancing across a barren field. It's embarrassing. It's infuriating. It's pointless. The whole cycle, just more of the same.
2: That evening, Charles Bowles rests in a rocking chair in the sitting room. He's still in pain, still grimy from a failed day in the fields. Around him, his daughters rustle about the house. Laughter bounces off the walls. His wife cleans the table. And by the look of it, she too is tired. Even more tired than him.
1: His daughters have no idea of their poverty. But he and his wife do. All too well. And they know soon their daughter's innocence will wear off. The girls so full of joy in this moment, will soon know and understand the unwavering hardships of their farm. It's a life that will break them.
2: Charles wipes a sleeve across his blurry eyes. What is their best chance? To marry some other struggling farmer? To live the exact same hardship just at a new address? Are there no prospects? It's not fair, it's just not. Why does it have to?
1: A warm kiss on the forehead brings Charles out of his daze. It's his wife, Mary. She and the girls are going to bed. She smiles and squeezes his hand. He nods. He'll be there soon.
2: But Charles Bowles does not join his wife in bed that night. He stays there in that rocking chair, living his old memories over and over. A life lived in regret. A future stolen away. The wound, his brother, the war, the farm, over and over again till the beat of the drum inside plays a loud and final count. What will he do? What can he do?
1: In the wee hours of the morning, he tiptoes into the bedroom. His wife lies deep in sleep beneath a quilt, her face beautiful as ever. He's moving, but not sliding into bed beside her. He's packing a bag, a couple shirts, a pair of trousers, just the bare necessities.
2: Then, he's sneaking past the girls' room, backtracking to take a peek inside. A long look, a heart, breaking for their doomed innocence.
1: In the kitchen, he leaves a note on the table.
2: Gone west, there's a fortune in the mines. I intend to find it.
1: On the way out, he grabs a worn Bible from the sitting room, one he's read countless times, and tucks it in his bag. It's a token, a reminder of the family he leaves behind in Missouri the American dream won't arrive by his hard work, then he will stop waiting.
2: Outside, it becomes real. Charles knows morning will return soon enough, and when it does, his wife and his daughter's images of them reading his note flash before his eyes. So few words, yet impossible to understand. He knows, but that's all there is. Charles does not turn around. He walks, and he does not stop.
1: July 26th, 1875. Charles Bowles, now 46, stands alone at the top of Funk Hill, the last of the steep inclines on the winding road between Copperopolis and Milton in Northern California. He wears a linen duster and bowler hat, his face is covered by a flower bag mask, and in his hands he holds a double-barreled shotgun close to his chest. His boots are covered by thick wool socks.
2: It's not Black Bart, not yet. This is Charles's first robbery, and he's nervous. The day is warm, and the roughness of the flower bag scratches against his face and sticks to his sweaty skin. It's been a dry summer, and the red powder of the road hangs heavy in the air, making him cough.
1: He tries to calm himself by breathing deeply and taking in the scent of the road's oak leaves. Soon, the sound of creaking wheels turning over the dirt, straining up the incline, reaches position. More than one horse whinnies, and the driver urges them on. A coach crests the hill and approaches. Charles Bowles cocks the shotgun and steadies himself.
2: The stagecoach stops just feet away from Bowles. It's driven by John Shine, a veteran of the road, and he's just trying to get to the railroad depot in Milton by lunchtime. Next to Shine is a U.S. mail pouch and a Wells Fargo express box. There's not much money in there, to Wells Fargo at least, and so John Shine drives without protection and is unarmed himself. Inside the coach are ten passengers, women, children, and a couple men. One is a young miner; the other, John Olive, the co-owner of this stagecoach line.
1: Please throw down the box, Charles Bull says to John Shine. Now Shine wasn't born yesterday; he knows that whatever is in that box is not worth his life
2: and it's probably insured anyway.
1: Yeah, so there's no need to be a hero here, but the horses are spooked by the masked figure on the road, and the box is heavy. With one hand, John tries to manage the reins, and he's having a hard time figuring out how to use his single free hand to get a heavy hunk of iron down to the robber, so he hesitates and tries to think of the best
2: way to do it. Meanwhile, Charles Bowles is growing impatient and more scared by the second. He looks to a boulder on the side of the road and says, If you
1: make some move, give him a volley, boys.
2: John follows his gaze, and sure enough, popping over the top of the boulder, he sees what appear to be four rifle barrels.
1: It gets John moving. and He pushes the box off the stagecoach, (coughs) down to the dirt.
2: The young miner inside the coach pulls a pistol from his waistband, ready to fight back. But John Olive, the owner of the coach, grabs the miner's wrist and pushes it down.
1: Put that away, you'll get us all killed, he says.
2: Olive leans his head out the window and tells Bowles he can take what he wants. They will offer no resistance.
1: I have taken all I need, Charles Bowles says and waves the stagecoach on its way. Once they're gone, he scurries behind the boulder on the side of the road. On his knees, he sets down his shotgun and pulls a hatchet from his waistband. Then leaning over the cash box, he begins chipping away
2: Over and over he hits the metal cash box until finally it bursts open. And there it is. Gold notes, beautiful gold notes, courtesy of the Wells Fargo company. It's not much, $160 or a little over $4,000 today, but it's a decent take. And then
1: Bowles hears something. Wheels turning, horses huffing. He can't believe it. Another stagecoach on the road. This is his lucky day. He rushes out to meet it.
2: But he forgets his shotgun and stands there with only his hatchet. He tries to hold it in the most menacing way he can, but it's hard to look all that tough on the open road wearing a flower bag on your head and holding just a hatchet in your hands.
1: When the stagecoach stops, Bowles demands the cash box, just as he did a few moments before.
2: But the driver responds that he doesn't have one.
1: You have nothing from the bank? Bowles finds it hard to believe.
2: Sorry, but the driver doesn't. So, Bowles waves him on his way and scurries into the woods, a little scared, feeling a little foolish, high on the thrill, and $160 richer.
1: Several hours later, Sheriff Thorne and Wells Fargo Chief of Detectives, James B. Hume, arrive at the scene of the crime. Detective Hume and Charles Bowles, one day they will both learn that they are not all that different from one another. They're both from the East Coast, They're both more educated than your average person at the time, and they both had gone west to strike it rich in the gold rush, only to fail.
2: After that, Hume had chanced upon the role of lawman, and Bowles had chosen the role of highwayman. Each will play a game of cat and mouse for years. Hume will hunt Bowles obsessively, even when it becomes clear that Wells Fargo is spending nearly as much on the investigation as it is losing on Bowles' robberies
1: and Hume will come to respect Bowles' drive and intelligence. After this first robbery, the inexperienced Bowles hasn't actually left behind much evidence. Those rifle barrels, the ones shine feared after Bowles gave the order to fire if he moves, they're just sticks whittled down to look like guns. The woolen socks Bowles wore over his boots, they've distorted his footprints.
2: There's no way for the investigators to know what kind of boots he was wearing. And while Bowles did leave behind his shotgun, That particular weapon is so common to the area, it tells them essentially nothing.
1: At the end of the day, Thorne and Hume don't have much to go on in their investigation. The only material evidence they've got are some sticks that look like rifles, some useless footprints, and a weapon that could be found in any camper's lodgings in California.
2: They're searching for a man wearing wool socks over his boots and a flower bag on his head.
1: It's an unusual description, but it's not very helpful because of course the culprit isn't parading around town like this.
2: Apparently he's oddly polite too, which again, notable, but not that helpful in picking the guy off the street.
1: What Thorne and Hume don't know is that back in San Francisco, Charles Bowles lives a double life. He's a self-proclaimed mining man. He's educated and affable, growing his wealth, and just about everyone seems to like him. To those in his inner circle, He's known as Charlie Bowles, and even counts a few police detectives among his acquaintances. It's a very different life than the one he lived in Missouri. And while he doesn't have it all by any means, he has much more than before. A good handful of people even admire him. Him, a self-made man of the West on his way to striking it rich in the golden fields of California.
2: He spends his days in the city, his nights reading from his worn Bible, the only link to his family left behind. But every few months, he disappears into the wilderness for several weeks. Maybe, his friends think, he's checking on his mines and conducting business.
1: Maybe he's an amateur naturalist who enjoys solitary time in the woods.
2: What we know now is that he's robbing coaches. A lot. And always, his target is Wells Fargo.
1: Over a period of eight years, he'll rob 28 stagecoaches and acquire nearly half a million dollars in today's money.
2: But why? Why has Charles Bowles gone so bad?
1: It's not clear. The night he left his family, he made his way to Idaho and Montana. He tried his hand again at prospecting. Maybe he was tortured by the memories of David, his brother who died in California, and wanted to honor his legacy by accomplishing what the two of them couldn't do together.
2: But he didn't find much in Idaho or Montana or anything at all, it seems.
1: There are rumors that, while prospecting, Bowles had a run-in with Wells Fargo agents that led to a vow of revenge and his extreme hatred for that company in particular.
2: But this is all unverified hearsay. Other than the note he left on the family table, Bowles doesn't correspond with his wife again until the 1880s, so there's nothing to glean from personal letters. It's possible the rumors of his vengeance are a retroactive invention meant to explain the motivations of Black Bart. Maybe he's
1: an ex-soldier trying to regain the thrill of war, Maybe that quiet life in Missouri was just something he couldn't do after all he'd seen in the Civil War.
2: Or maybe robbing stagecoaches is the natural conclusion for a man broken by all of the above. The war, the death of his brother, the struggles of his family, and he's driven into a mad desperation.
1: And for him, Wells Fargo could simply be a logical target. It's a company generally disliked by the common people at the time. All the money Bulls stole from Wells Fargo was insured, and immediately reimbursed. So who was actually losing anything? To him, it's a large, faceless corporation. Perhaps Bowles reasoned that he was robbing from a balance sheet or a ledger somewhere, not real people, as evidenced by his refusal to ever take any personal belongings from the stagecoach passengers.
2: All that to say, we don't know much about the why, but we do know that Wells Fargo takes Bowles seriously from the beginning.
0: And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: After that first robbery on July 26, 1875, the company makes a wanted poster, and they plaster it all over Northern California.
1: It reads, Reward. Wells Fargo and Company's express box containing $160 in gold notes was robbed this morning by one man on the route from Sonora to Milton, near the top of the hill, between the river and Copperopolis. $250 and one-fourth of any money recovered will be paid for the arrest and conviction of the robber.
2: It's a pretty disproportionate response. The reward is worth more than what Bulls took from the stagecoach. Wells Fargo wastes more money printing the notice and spreading it throughout the region and the poster ends up doing nothing. The bank and lead investigator Hume get no tips, no actionable leads, and Hume finds himself frustrated from that point on.
1: Because it continues. Every few months for eight years, a man with a flower bag on his head and wool socks over his boots appears on the road. Every time, he politely robs a Wells Fargo stagecoach. And yet, he never fires a shot and never hurts anyone. He's a polite ghost, haunting the biggest bank on the West Coast.
2: He's good at it, too. He never leaves any clues, so Hume has no identifying features to go on and no name for his suspect.
1: Until Bowles writes poems that he leaves behind. Today, he's known as the poet outlaw, but he actually only leaves behind poems twice over the course of his 28 robberies. There's the one from August 3rd, 1877, and there's this one from July 25th, 1878.
2: Here I lay me down to sleep, to wait the coming morrow. Perhaps success, perhaps defeat, and everlasting sorrow. Let come what will, I'll try it on. My condition can't be worse. And if there's money in that box, tis money in my purse.
1: He signs both poems, Black Bart. And that's enough. The legend is born. He's now the gentleman poet outlaw. The highwayman of Northern California that can't be caught.
2: By the 1880s, he's not just a poet or a gentleman. To some, he's starting to look like a man of the people, a California Robin Hood. The press begins to wonder if what he's doing is even all that bad.
1: Black Bart, the San Francisco Examiner writes in September 1882, Shasta County's notorious highwayman asks all people he stops to contribute to an orphan asylum. And there is something so forbidding in his appearance that all the travelers shell out without asking where the asylum is or how much it needs.
2: All this good press about the robber soliciting donations to orphanages, it has to get under Hume's skin. It's frustrating, compounded by the fact that this mysterious robber knows who hunts him, knows who Hume is, but the reverse is not true. Hume has no idea who he's chasing, not really.
1: Black Bart despises Hume, the examiner reports again, but never fails to send that gentleman his regards after committing a robbery. The poems the donations, the lack of clues, and now these gentlemanly regards to the investigators. Hume has to feel like he's being taunted by Black Bart.
2: The investigator becomes obsessed. He is going to catch this Black Bart robber no matter what, even if it's the last he ever does in his career. Bowles is really good, but he cannot stay perfect forever.
1: It's November 3rd, 1883 a 54-year-old Charles Black Bart Bowles returns to Funk Hill, the scene of his very first robbery. This time, he's confident. The flower mask and wool socks no longer feel amateur. His nerves are rock solid. After all, it is the 28th time he's done this, and it's now muscle memory, instinct. He's a seasoned highwayman.
2: He crouches behind the rock where he once staged branches to look like rifles. He holds his shotgun close to his chest and focuses on his breathing. Cool and calm, deep breath after deep breath.
1: Waiting, he listens. But he's not there long before the familiar sound of coach wheels turning over rough red dirt arrives. Huffing horses struggle up the hill. He cocks his weapon, stands, and takes his place in the middle of the road.
2: The stagecoach, Carrying a Wells Fargo Strong box stops as the coaches always do. Black Bart approaches. In his gait, there's now a hint of a swagger.
1: Throw down the box, please, Black Bart says, polite as ever.
2: Well, you're not going to like this, the driver responds. The box is bolted down to this coach. There's no getting it down. It's Reason McConnell, seasoned driver for 10 years. And this is not the first time he's been robbed and he knows the legend of Black Bart like everybody else. So, he remains steadfast and calm.
1: Black Bart scopes out the inside of the coach. It's empty, seems Reason McConnell drives alone, but he doesn't appear to be armed. Get down, Black Bart says. Unhitch the horses and take them down the hill a while.
2: With some hesitation, McConnell obliges. And when he does, Black Bart shimmies atop the now abandoned stagecoach.
1: McConnell has not lied. The strongbox is bolted down. It's on there snug, and it's gonna take some work to pry it off. This moment, the scene, reminds him of his first robbery when he hacked away at the initial lockbox behind the boulder with a cheap hatchet.
2: And yet, it's different this time. This time he's prepared. Out comes a crowbar from his waist and he sets to work. Methodical, seasoned. The strongbox breaks open, and Black Bart flips the lid. With both hands, he stuffs pockets with gold coins. He snags the mailbag, ready to go, ready to disappear into the wilderness, as always, to return to life as Charles Bowles in San Francisco. But there's
1: something else this time, something new. A crack shatters the air, and then impact. Splintering wood, a blast through the stagecoach just to his side. It's a gunshot, one, and then another. This one hits even closer to him, so close he feels the sharp whiz of the bullet as it passes his face, just millimeters from killing him, and then the spray of splinters hitting the flower bag
2: on his head. Crouching low, he looks down the hill. There are two men in the road, and they have a rifle, aimed right for him. Black Bart jumps and makes a break for the woods.
1: Two quick shots in succession ring out.
2: Black Bart falls to the ground. He rolls once, staggers to his feet, grabs his right hand, and stumbles into the woods.
1: Those two men on the road with the rifle are Reason McConnell, the stagecoach driver, and Jimmy Roleri, a young hunter who had hitched a ride with McConnell that morning. Mere moments before Black Bart stopped the coach, Roleri had jumped out, rifle in hand, to chase after a buck spotted in the
2: woods. They give chase to Black Bart, but he's gone. Behind the boulder on the side of the road, they find a pool of blood and the US mail discarded in a heap. McConnell and Rolleri will later dispute things, Rolleri claims he fired all four shots, while McConnell claims he fired the last two after grabbing the rifle from Rolleri. What matters is that Black Bart has been wounded. It appears he is mortal after all.
1: It's everything Hume needs to close in on Black Bart. Within hours, he's on the scene. He follows Black Bart's trail of blood a quarter mile into the woods. There, Hume finds the shotgun stuffed in a hollow tree, a pair of eyeglasses in the dirt, And what will prove to be the undoing of Black Bart after eight years and 28 robberies? A bloodied handkerchief.
2: On the handkerchief, there's an inscription, FX07. It's a laundry mark, a receipt issued by a laundromat, and a unique number assigned to only one customer. It appears to belong to the infamous Black Bart, and it's covered in blood.
1: Hume, now joined by Harry Morse,
2: an investigator Hume has hired for the sole purpose of catching Black Bart.
1: Goes on to scour every laundromat in San Francisco. The search is tedious. It's dead end after dead end after dead end, but they don't give up.
2: Eventually, Hume and Morris end up at Ferguson and Biggs California Laundry. The clerk recognizes the mark and tells the investigators one of his laundry agents, who owns a nearby tobacco shop, might know more.
1: He's right. The owner of that tobacco shop tells them that he knows that ticket. It belongs to a mining proprietor by the name of Charles E. Bowles, addressed 37 Second Street. And just like that, it's time to pay Black Bart a visit.
2: When Charles Bowles opens the door for Hume and Morse that day, he looks nothing like a seasoned highwayman. As Morse would later recount, Bowles was, quote, elegantly dressed, carried a cane, wore a natty little derby hat, a diamond pin with a large diamond on his finger, and a heavy gold watch and chain. Yet, beneath the finery was a man who fit almost exactly the description of the stage bandit, which James Hume had put together from his many sources.
1: Now, human and Morse, they don't immediately identify themselves as police officers. They present themselves as fellow mining men, interested in learning from someone so knowledgeable as the man who lives at 37 Second Street. Happy to oblige, Bowles speaks with the two men for hours,
2: It's question after question from the visitors. The two investigators grow more suspicious as Bowles' answers become increasingly inconsistent and contradictory. Hmm, they also notice he's missing some skin on his hand. When asked, Bowles cooks up a fantastic story about a freak accident.
1: Under the pretense of needing to stretch his legs, Hume snoops around the apartment. And what he finds is exactly what he needs. A dirty linen duster jacket, a bowler hat, and... Most conclusively, a laundry mark in a pile of dirty clothes. FX-07, the same number found on the bloody handkerchief at the scene of the crime.
2: Human moors, they know it's time. They identify themselves as policemen at last and arrest Bowles on the spot under the suspicion of being Black Bart, the notorious highwayman. Bowles grows incredulous.
1: You take me for a stage robber? I've never harmed anyone in my life. And now you stand here and bring my character into question?
2: Why yes, that's exactly what they're doing. On their way out, Hume pauses and picks up Bowles' Bible from the table by the door. He leafs through it, and something catches his attention. So he brings it along.
1: At the station, Bowles refuses to cooperate. He gives his name as T.Z. Spalding when booked. He's adamant that he's not Black Bart that he's simply a successful mining man, falsely accused of crimes he did not commit.
2: It's then that Hume places the Bible he took from the apartment in front of Bowles. He opens it, and on the inside jacket, there's an inscription.
1: This precious Bible is presented to Charles E. Bowles, 1st Sergeant, Company B, 116th Illinois Volunteer Infantry, by his wife as a New Year's gift. God gives us hearts to which His faith to believe. Decatur, Illinois, 1865.
2: There's no way he can talk his way out of this. That precious Bible given to him by his loving wife and which kept him company during the worst turmoil of his life is now the undoing of his entire criminal enterprise. He has no choice but to confess.
1: And he does just that. The next morning, broken by hours of interrogation and the identifying inscription in the Bible, Charles Bowles finally admits that he is Black Bart. But he does not confess to all 28 robberies. He's done some research on his own, and he only admits to the robberies committed after 1879, believing the statute of limitations has expired on his earlier crimes.
2: Hume has one more question for Bowles. Why Black Bart? Where does a name like that come from?
1: It's the name of a character in a novel that I liked, The Case of Summerfield. That's it, no grand revelation of the mystery behind the name or significant symbolism. It's just something Bowles liked and like his ambiguous motivations for becoming a highwayman in the first place, the choice of a name seems more happenstance than carefully considered.
2: Ultimately, Wells Fargo only presses charges for the final robbery, and after a plea deal, Charles Bowles is sentenced to six years in prison, which he will serve at the infamous San Quentin.
1: It is a shockingly light sentence for the crime. The press picks up on the story of the gentleman bandit once again, and re-sparks public curiosity. Who is he? Why is he getting so little time for what he's done?
2: Reporters from the San Francisco Morning Call put the pieces together and track down Charles's wife, Mary Bowles, in Hannibal, Missouri. She's not heard from her husband in over a decade, she tells reporters. She's struggling in poverty, scraping by as a seamstress and living with one of her daughters. The farm? Sold with the house years ago to find a search party to find Charles. They'd come up with nothing, and she'd presume Charles to be dead, until today, in 1883, when morning call reporters showed up at her door.
1: Just like that, the press and public turn on Black Bart. He's no longer a Robin Hood-like figure, a man of the people who steals from a soulless corporation. He is a scoundrel, an immoral lout who abandoned his wife and four daughters, leaving them to mourn him as dead for over a decade. Even Hume, who had come to respect Bowles during the latter stages of the investigation and the trial, changes his tune and describes the bandit as, quote, the meanest, the most pusillanimous thief in the whole catalog.
2: And yet, amid everything, the one person who does not turn on Charles Bowles is Mary. The two pick up a correspondence while Charles serves his sentence behind bars. From their letters, it's clear the two had a great deal of love and affection for one another, even after Bowles' abandonment of the family. The public sees him as a monster, but his wife does not. So what's the truth?
1: That things are always far more complex than they appear. It's Missouri, 1867 again. Charles Bowles has finished packing his things. He holds the Bible, with that lovely note from Mary close to his chest as he exits the house. The choice he makes breaks his heart, but he knows it's the only choice he has left.
2: There's no way he can make this farm work. There's no way it's gonna provide any sort of comfortable life for him, Mary, and their children. But if he becomes a ghost, if he disappears, then maybe, just maybe, someone else will provide what he never could. So many times he had tried, fighting for justice in the war, prospecting, farming, each time he'd come up short. Mary's father, however, he has money, but he won't give them any while Charles is around. And so if Bowles disappears, then perhaps Mary and the girls will get the life they deserve. So Charles Bowles leaves, not out of a desire to escape or to abandon, but out of the desire to secure for those whom he loves what he never could, a life of safety and security.
1: Only things don't work out as planned. Mary never gets the money from her father. But what is clear is that their love for each other has not abated in the years they've been apart. Charles Bowles is released from prison two years early for good behavior. Mary urges him to join her and the daughters in Missouri, but he can't. He's too embarrassed, and he feels like he'd be nothing but a burden to them.
2: They write back and forth for a while, and then Charles Bowles sends one last letter to Mary. It reads, in part,
1: Oh, my constant loving Mary and children. I did hope and had good reason for hoping to be able to come to you and end all this terrible uncertainty, but it seems it will only end in my life. Although I am free and in fair health, I am most miserable. My dear family, I wish you would give me up forever and be happy, for I feel I will be a burden to you as long as I live, no matter where I am, my loving family. I would willingly sacrifice my life to enjoy your living company for a week, as I once was. I fear you will blame me for not coming, but heaven knows it is an utter impossibility. I love you, but I fear you will not believe me, and I know the world will scoff at the idea.
2: Mary never hears from Charles again. She tries to correspond with him in vain, going so far as to enlist Hume's help in placing letters in newspapers across the country just to get her husband's attention. But there's nothing more than silence. Her husband is once again a ghost.
1: Charles Bowles has been broken by his life of crime and years of regret he spends his last years dejected, impoverished, shamed, and alone. He travels from boarding house to boarding house, hotel to hotel, always looking over his shoulder, fearing that Wells Fargo will one day come for their revenge.
2: Charles Bowles, Black Bart, is last seen on February 28th, 1888, by a hotelier who would report to Hume that he had checked in and then almost immediately disappeared.
1: Some say he went east, perhaps back to New York, his first home in America. One Wells Fargo detective would go on to claim Bowles moved to Japan in the 1890s, and others would say he ended up working as a pharmacist in California. The truth is, though, no one knows for sure.
2: November, 1888. A man steps forward into an empty road in Nevada. He wears a dirty linen duster jacket. His head is covered by an empty flour sack with roughly cut eye holes and he wears wool socks over his boots. In his arms, a shotgun, just as a stagecoach approaches.
1: He cocks the weapon and levels it at the coach when it stops. He says, please throw down.
2: But before he can finish, the driver draws his own weapon and shoots, killing the man in the road instantly. The driver goes on his way, leaving the would-be robber alone in a pool of blood on that desolate road in Nevada.
1: By the time the investigators arrive, the body is so badly decomposed that there's no identifying information. They have no way of knowing who it might be, so they bury this unknown man in an unmarked grave. The crime had all the markers of the infamous Black Bart, so maybe he had been there in Nevada, biding his time until it was safe to strike again. Perhaps the dead man in Nevada was Charles Bowles, and perhaps it was not, but most signs point to yes.
2: So what is it about the tale of Charles Bowles that is so haunting? Perhaps many of us, robbed of the promised American dream, desperate to break bad and break out of uncertainty and hardship, can see ourselves in his shoes. He was a desperate man, with an aversion to violence and a propensity for politeness, willing to think outside of the box and take what he thinks he deserves, all with a please and a thank you.
1: Like hundreds of thousands in the 1860s, Charles Bowles fought and bled for his country, a country that in return did nothing to secure his livelihood. It was this festering hole, not only his bayonet wounded stomach, but his heart that he intended to fill the day he cowardly left from his family to fend for himself.
2: Unfortunately, as was the case of Charles Bowles, no amount of highway robbery can heal holes so deep.
1: It's difficult to know what Charles Bowles thought as he stood there at the end facing the gunman. Did the muscle memory of his brain take over, bringing him back to the battlefields of the Civil War? Did he brace himself for yet another mortal wound?
2: Did he revisit conversations with his late brother? Did he think about death in the face of danger? Or was he back to that quiet night on the farm, sitting with his wife by the fire? If only he didn't leave. If only his creation of Black Bart and revenge against a society that did him wrong never became a reality.
1: But it did. And in turning to a life of crime, old Charles Bowles, the most gentlemanly outlaw there ever was, sealed the very outcome he wanted to avoid. He wasn't there to support his family because he wasn't there at all.
2: Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is executive produced by Jason and Carissa Weiser and Colin Thompson.
1: Today's episode was written by Timothy L. Fosbury. It's produced by DJ Lubell and edited and sound designed by Anton Doty.
2: Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is a cast original podcast.
1: Hey everyone, Jason and Carissa here.
2: If you're enjoying Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review.
1: Also, we'd love your feedback.
2: Go to castmedia.com slash scoundrelfeedback and answer our survey. Thanks.
0: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?